Welcome to an Adapt, Improve, Achieve session by RCVS Knowledge, which was recorded at SPVS VMG Congress on the 25th of January 2020 at Celtic Manor Resort in Newport as part of the Quality Improvement Stream. In this session, we will hear from a panel of vets and nurses, Louise Northway of Wendover Heights Veterinary Centre, Alison Thomas from Blue Cross, Richard Byrne of West Bar Hospital, and Pam Mosedale, RCVS Knowledge Quality Improvement Advisory Board, led by Dan Tipney of VetLed. The panel discussed their experience of quality improvement in practice, from hand hygiene to temperature management and introducing guidelines. In this session, they discuss ideas on topics to start with, how to record, tips to engage your team, as well as the benefits and barriers they have experienced. As I said, welcome to our, to our final, final part of the stream today. And today, this, this, this session's really all about, we've got a, a fabulous panel here, um, some great insights and experience um, around quality improvement we've been talking about so far. Um, so I'll introduce them uh, in a second. And it's all about the how. We've, talk, we've heard a lot about the background around you know, what is QI, why is it important. We've had some examples of what people have done. But this is really an opportunity to hear from people who have really got in there and either done it themselves or experienced, you know, firsthand you know, experienced what people are doing in practice and hearing how they've done it um, and what, um, what impact it's had. Um, so um, and just a little bit about uh, RCVS Knowledge, this stream here. Um, they're a fantastic organization, although despite the name, uh, are a totally separate organization to RCVS itself. Um, and they're working to advance the quality of veterinary care um, by providing support um, to veterinary teams for evidence-based uh, veterinary medicine, as well as um, quality improvement tools, which are very much is what this is about here. Um, one of the things I think is really relevant to what we're talking about now are some of the resources available on the RCVS Knowledge website uh, around a lot of the stuff we're talking about, around things like audits, guidelines, checklists. So there's some fantastic resources, and something that did come out today as well, which some of you have probably seen some of the information from a massive project, um, big research project, which, um, which was, as I said, just released um, yes, well, technically yesterday, but uh, I think this is the first time anyone will have seen all this. So, um, so they're, they're available in um, all, the different, no, there's just that one over there. Um, if you'd like to collect some information on that, and also some resources on um, surgical safety checklist manuals. So some great resources there. Um, so I'll proceed um, on to talking about the panel we've got. We've got uh, Lou Northway um, from um, Wendover Heights. Um, we've got Richard Byrne from uh, West Bar. Uh, Alison from, uh, from Blue Cross and Pam Mosdell, who's sort of representing um, our, our RCVS knowledge, I suppose, in, in this capacity. Um, so I'll let them introduce themselves uh, in a bit more detail now. Uh, so what we'd like to just hear, I, I suppose, in this initial introduction would just be um, a bit more information about your role within your organization, uh, any of the quality improvement projects that you've been involved in yourselves, um, and um, why you think your QI is so important. And just be really interesting to hear that as a starting point, really, just in the audit you're sitting. Okay, so um, good afternoon everyone. Um, as Dan just introduced me, my name's Lou Northway. I'm a registered veterinary nurse and I'm based at a big um, first opinion practice in Buckinghamshire. Um, we deal with small animals, um, exotics, lots of those, and um, equine as well, although I'm not involved in equine. Um, I have worked at Wendover for 10 years. I've been in practice for 15 years and I've been qualified for 11 years. So um, I've been a vet nurse pretty much my whole life. Um, I was appointed as clinical nurse lead about four years ago now. Um, so that involves um, being basically the one that looks at what we're doing, how we're doing, and why we're doing it. Um, I started doing clinical audits back in 2017. And to start with, I was using the RCVS vet audit um, 
uh, spreadsheet, and that basically involves me looking at post-op complications in our dogs and cats. Um, so that was like the starting blocks for me. And at first, when I started doing that, I don't know, I, I, wasn't, I didn't think I was going to learn that much. I thought we were doing great. But actually, it became very apparent very early on that we weren't doing as well as what I had anticipated. So anyway, um, lots of positive things have come from that. Um, later, I did an anaesthesia certificate. That's one of my other loves in life. Um, and when I was on the course, there were lots of things that I was thinking about when I was there. How are we doing? Are we doing a good job? Could we do, be doing things better? But I didn't really have any evidence or ways of knowing that um, because it was, at this point, just opinion. So um, back in 2018, I undertook a big anaesthesia audit at my practice, which involved looking at um, intraoperative and postoperative complications, drugs we were using, monitoring equipment we were using, were we even using monitoring equipment, um, and things like that. And um, the results that came out were really surprising. And um, I thought we were doing great. We were only doing good. <laughs> and um, we had a lot of training after that um, to sort of change the way we were doing things. But there were a lot of really positive learning outcomes as a result. So um, I think that's all I'm going to say for this bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, I've learned a lot. Perfect. No, thank you very much for that intro. And we'll, we'll get a chance to go in to ask you some more, more specific questions um, uh, as, it, as it goes on. But thanks for that intro. And Richard. Hi there, and um, thanks for coming after lunch. Um, I'm Richard Byrne, uh, West Bar Vets in Banbury. Uh, we're an independent practice. Um, I'm still in my first job after 32 years. I'm still doing a one in four rotor. Not really sure why. Uh, gave up cow seizures last year for someone else, so no more 2 a.m. calls for me. Um, but the thing I've always done, I've always enjoyed practice, but always wondered why do we do what we do? And is there a, an evidence base for it? And in about 2010, I think, probably to coincide with a, a PSS assessment, we decided that we ought to try and just monitor what we're doing in terms of, uh, of particularly it was post-operative uh, post monitoring to see what is actually happening, how are our patients doing, how good are we performing. And um, we started that audit then. Um, I have certain skills in technology, um, so we were actually able to uh, essentially computerize that process um, so that all our audit as feeds in it gives us a live feed of what's actually happening within the practice uh, using our practice management system. And that's given us some really, really interesting um, changes that we've actually seen on the audit. Um, and then we ask the questions why, and, and we actually are providing evidence. Um, and it's actually changing some of the behaviors that we're doing because of the evidence that's coming back from the, from the audit. Um, do you want us to go through it, or are you going to come no, we back? Can, we can ask some more specific questions. We've got so plenty of time, later. so as much, yeah. Yeah, as much as so, introducing the... Um, yeah. I also, for, for my sins, um, uh, I'm a practice standards assessor uh, two days a month or so, uh, so I confess that as well. Um, but the great thing about that is that you go around and you can see some really good stuff happening in practices, but you also see practices uh, struggling with the whole concept of... Uh, what is quality improvement, what is clinical governance and um, really it would be really good to be able to sort of spread the message a bit more and try and demonstrate some simple things that people can do and maybe we'll go over those yeah. a little bit later. Absolutely, yeah, yeah we've definitely got lots of time to really dig into that and hear from, hear, you know, hear from what you've been up to, that would be great. Thank you okay. very much. 
Hello, I'm Alison Thomas. Um, I work for Blue Cross, which is a charity, quite a small charity. Um, we have a number of uh, hospitals offering treatments, which is essentially free, um, to people who are on qualifying benefits. Um, we also do rehoming education, um, have an external affairs department as well. Um, my role is as Head of Veterinary Services, um, but I share this role with a colleague, um, and that enables <coughs> us both to do some clinical work, as well as uh, all the, the sort of overseeing and organising that we do. Um, and that's, I think, a real advantage in our position in that we're much more aware of what's going on on the shop floor. Um, and also, we, we, um, I think we're better respected in our other role because we're seen dealing with all the real problems. Um, before working for Blue Cross, I had a number of different jobs working in both charity and private practice um, in the UK and also overseas in Asia. Um, but Blue Cross was the first place I'd worked where I didn't have to charge anything for owned pets. Um, and when I first started, I thought this is absolutely brilliant. I don't have to turn anybody away or even worse, put an animal to sleep um, because the owner can't afford the treatment that's needed. Um, and I don't have to have that conversation of how much can they afford and, and what are we going to do. Um, but over the years, and particularly as more treatments and investigations uh, became available uh, within veterinary medicine, I became more and more uncomfortable about it. Um, it, it. It was worrying me that we didn't know where to stop. And um, if we made an offer of something to a client, they would very often accept. And this was all at our expense. And I also became a little bit worried that um, we were extending life without necessarily improving quality of life, or even worse, in the face of decreasing quality of life. So we needed some sort of a structure to work within. Um, obviously, we were paying for the treatment, so cost was going to be a primary driver. But we didn't want to just work within a cost threshold, because if you make a rigid cost threshold, you might miss some cases that with a little bit more effort, a little bit more input, um, can have a great quality of life and are satisfying for a vet's team to manage, um, and also great for the owner as well. So we wanted to look at it in more of a cost-limited, um, evidence-based, welfare-driven sense. And so we decided that we were going to um, develop a library of clinical guidelines. And in developing these guidelines, we were looking at primarily at evidence, and we were involving the whole team in their development. Um, and what we've ended up with is we've now got about <coughs> 55 guidelines on a whole variety of topics. Um, what that has done for us is it's reduced our costs. We measure cost to the organisation per animal helped over the course of a year. That's come down by 15%. Other things are reduce, reduction in the percentage of consultations that result in an antibiotic prescription. So. Um, it has made a real difference, and it's been absolutely fantastic CPD and team building activity as well. So um, 
We are keen to, um, in acknowledging the, the benefits it's had for us, we're keen to try and help people across the country who aren't in reach of charity services by developing some sort of peer-reviewed um, clinical guideline library for pragmatic cost-limited care. I think there's an awful lot of people who are poor, um, low-income families um, who perhaps are not daring to cross the threshold of a practice and if there was some sort of cost-limited um, service they could subscribe to um, it might increase footfall through practices, it could increase job satisfaction for veterinary teams and improve animal welfare. So that's where we're at. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Again, get a chance to explore some of those in, in more detail in a bit. Thank you, Alison. Pam? Hi, I'm Pam Nolesdale. I'm a vet. I've been qualified a lot for 40 years. Um, scary. <laughs> uh, but um, I've been in general practice all that time, first opinion practice. I started in mixed practice, um, did farm work for quite a long time, and then went to small animal practice. I was a partner in a veterinary hospital. When I was a partner in a veterinary hospital, I got involved with BVHA, and via BVHA, I just joined BVHA Council, and some bright spark had happened to notice that in the medical profession, they were starting to do this thing called clinical audit. So they said, oh, we need to explore that. Pam, <laughs> you're the new person. You've got this, had this baby given to me of clinical audit to look after, so I did some clinical audits um, in my practice, and I wrote the first article on clinical audit back in 1998, I realised this morning when somebody put the slide up. Um, and I found it really, my, my practice really enjoyed it. They all were felt really motivated by it. In fact, um, it wasn't just a clinical team. The reception team wanted to be involved, and we did client waiting time audits, with which the vets got very competitive. <laughs> um, so that was my first um, experience. And then I was a practice standards um, inspector. Well, I was a BSAVA practice standards inspector, and then went to Royal College. Um, and obviously, it's in the code. It's in the code in clinical governance is a code of practice core requirement. We all should be practicing equivalent to core standards, even if you're not in practice standards. But lots of practices didn't really know, lots of vets didn't really know what clinical governance means. Um, so my kind of mission, while I've been a practice standards assessor, has been to try and explain the simple things people can do. Because it's my... Um, I entirely think it's what we've all always done. I don't think it's something new and different. It's just we've always done it. We might have done it informally over coffee, tea break. But what we have to do now is do it in a more formalised way and record it and, and make sure we, we, we actually learn from it and make the changes. That, that, that's the difference from the slightly informal way we did it in the past. So I'm now lead assessor of Practice Standards Scheme. Um, I've... I'm involved in training the other assessors, including Richard, <laughs> and uh, it's, we, we've very much um, uh, emphasised in that um, the, for the assessors when they go out into practices to come up with practical ideas to help practices comply with the requirements for, for clinical governance. I wish we could call it quality improvement. Um, we have to still call it clinical governance in PSS because that's what it says in the code. But to me, quality improvement is such a better word. It's a real Ron seal, does what it says on the tin word, isn't it? Rather than clinical governance sounds a little bit scary and so on. Um, and so really, yes, the other, the other thing is um, when RCBS Knowledge got involved in quality improvement, they asked me if I joined their quality improvement board, uh, which I was very happy to do if we were going to come up with something practical. And I'm glad to say we have come up, I, I think and hope, with some very, very practical resources. And have all of you seen them? Yeah, if anybody hasn't seen the knowledge resources yet? 
Oh, please, anybody hasn't, please go on and have a look. They're, um, they're free, completely free. Um, they're really practical. They give you a template of, of how to start um, doing, using checklists, using guidelines, doing clinical audit, and another of my passions, significant event audit, because I think it's so important that when things go wrong, that we look at them in a constructive way to try and to look at the systems of work, looking at systems and improving systems, not about blaming people. Um, and then last year, I was very honoured to be asked to be chair of the RCBS Knowledge Quality Improvement Board. So, um, that's me. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Though. Thanks, Pam. And I think this is, it's great that we've got such a range. Um, you know, we've got, um, I, I guess, uh, someone, from, you know, Richard, from a sort of management perspective. We've got a sort of nursing perspective, veterinary perspective. Uh, and also, you know, Pam, more sort of externally, he gets to see what, what lots of different practices are up to. Um, in, in that role uh, as an assessor. So it's just, I think it's be really interesting to have, have all these different insights. Um, I suppose very briefly, my, my background in, in, in terms of chairing this, I'm coming, we've got a, whole, a, whole, a great team from, coming from a, a sort of clinical or in-practice um, roles. Um, and for those of you that, that don't know my role at VetLed, I'm, I, don't, I don't come from a clinical background at all, so I'm coming from the world of aviation and sport. Um, and particularly looking at the aviation side of things and the human factors training that I got involved in through in my training roles in different airlines and the training that I've delivered to healthcare teams and, and veterinary teams since then, um, I'm very much interested in how we explore the gap that exists between possessing clinical skills and knowledge and actually delivering the outcomes that we want to achieve. And for me, that's, that's the gap that I'm really interested in. And all the things around quality improvement give us the chance to do that and more. They give us the chance to explore what that gap is. It might be a gap in terms of uh, a non, you know, something around something non-clinical around the impact on sort of well-being and um, uh, the, the sort of the people themselves, but it might be around something clinical itself. So I, I guess I'm looking at it through the lens of patient safety and human factors, um, but we've got the opportunity to explore the clinical aspects as well. Um, some of the very specific things that are coming up here, um, certainly from my perspective, from flying checklists. Um, and um, safety reporting systems are, have been absolutely integral to flight safety, making the changes that it's made over the last few decades and aviation being as safe as it is. Um, so there's lots of things that, that I'm very, very interested in um, and lots of things that are very relevant to quality improvement from, from my perspective. So I will, um, I will sort of do what I can um, to sort of make those links with, uh, with my, you know, from, from my lens through that sort of human factors and patient safety um, eyes. Um, so I suppose uh, on to um, defining what we mean, having heard those different introductions and why quality improvement is so important from, from our panel's perspectives. And I think just to summarise what we've heard already from, um, from the different talks, those of you that have seen the talks we've had in this stream today already, there's been some great uh, examples of, of, of how different people have defined it. But essentially it's come down to you know, looking at what we already do and making it better. And it's sort of, and it really is a bit of a Ron Sill thing, a bit like I think what uh, what was what, what um, was just mentioned now that quality improvement is exactly what it says it is. It's it's stuff that a lot of people have been doing for a long time, but it's a way of formalising it and doing it in a way that that can provide a structure for other people um, to, to 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 follow. Um, and that's what we're kind of going to talk about now: is how can we actually have a structure around things such as audits, producing guidelines, um, implementing checklists, and all the other sort of things. Um, and I think that's, that's very much kind of um, how we would define it. Because um, it can sometimes be surprisingly hard to do, even though it is literally what it says it is. 
Um, so, on to the specific sort of questions. Um, I'll go through an order, and I think the starting off with, the natural place to, to, to start with is the audit itself, because that is the way in which we can discover what is really going on. Those of you that heard Suzette Woodward talking earlier, she talks a lot about knowing, you know, work as done. You know, we have this idea, particularly those of you in leadership and management roles, work as imagined. You imagine what work might be like for people, but we only actually know what happens by finding out what happens. And one of the ways we can do that is actually by performing audits. And so with this, on the topic of audits, and Lou has done some great work in this area, I'm, I'm interested as a starting point to understand how do you actually decide what, because there's so many different things you can explore, there's so many areas of patient care, patient safety, so many things that we could improve. So how do you actually go about choosing a topic to perform an audit on? in the first yeah, place. So, as I mentioned, initially, my first ever audit was on neutering. So that's routine, everyday neutering. Um, but rather than at first me focusing on an area where I know we were doing, well, not that I was aware we were doing poorly, but um, thinking, oh gosh, yeah, we need to work on that. For me, I actually have, a, it was an interest. So I wanted to look more into an area I had a focus on um, that I felt enthused about to see if we could make it even better. Um, so that was really my driving force. Um, so there was some, along the way of the course that I did, I thought, mm, we could probably update that. Mm, I'd come back into practice. I'd say to my vets, oh, perhaps we could change this. Um, and sometimes I say people are very resistant to change um, if there's no evidence for the need there for for the need for change. Um, so I thought, right, well, let's do an audit. We'll we'll see what how we're actually doing. Um, and the audit itself was very nothing fancy. I got three bits of A4 paper, stuck them together, put it on the wall in prep. It was pretty much from sort of how tall I am right down to the floor um, and after the nurses had put the patient back to bed they'd come and fill it out for me so that's how I collected my data so it really wasn't particularly fancy but that that's the way I did it um, and then I collated it put it onto the computer analyzed it and looked at it um, but I've actually gone off the question here, haven't I? What was the question? <laughs> Sorry. No, well, you, you're sort of talking about how you got in. So it's, it's around uh, actually how you, how you select what topic. What, how do you decide all the different things you could audit? How do you, how do you choose one that you think is going to have the biggest, yes. a, a, a big impact? So in, in the it was a passion for me. That right. was it, really. It was a passion. And I wanted to do things better. I thought we could do things better. Um, and with the audit, there were things we didn't need to change that we were doing just fine. But there was a lot that we did improve and has, it has made a big positive. Um, difference because um, I think when we come to do audits um, you may be thinking of just the things that you know perhaps your team doesn't do well but actually you can audit an area you do do well as well because then you're aiming for great because that's how I think of things you know I'd love to think that we're doing good but I want us to do awesome so that's what I that was my driver for the anesthesia audit. I think that links very much to what was discussed in one of the last talks from, from Suzette Woodward around safety too. It doesn't have to, something doesn't have to be broken to try and fix it. We can we can explore what's going well and understand why it's going well. And that's giving that and I think that, that mindset that, that can give us just as much value as actually understanding something that's not going so well is really, really important. And also the idea that choosing something very specific, you know, and, and sometimes if it's, just if, if it's just because you're really interested in it, then it's, still, it's a good enough reason, because if we try and do too much at once, then we compromise the ability yeah. to maybe to do anything. So being really specific, choosing one thing, doing it really well, um, and, and if it's because you just are passionate about it, then, then that makes sense. 
Um, so you've chosen a topic. So in terms of when you measure, um, you, you have to, I guess you have to define some sort of criteria around you know, how you're going to measure it. So how, do you go about, how have you gone about doing yeah, that so within your audit? Yeah, so I looked at key things. So I sat down and I, I sort of wrote up a list of questions what, before I got, made my design my audit sheet. What did I specifically want to look at? So there were patient safety factors I considered. For example, something as simple as placing an IV catheter. So how many patients were actually having an IV catheter placed? Um, and is that one on there? Yes. So um, in our dogs, the majority of dogs were having an IV catheter placed. They were having intravenous propofol for induction. So they'd need to have an IV catheter or preferably an IV catheter there. Um, but for our cats at the time, we were using um, injectable um, general anaesthesia. So, you know, there was no perceived need for an IV catheter. But actually, from a patient safety perspective, they should have an IV catheter as well. So that was a discussion point, which came back in with um, evidence. So I went and looked for some papers. The Broadbelt study is a really good one to look at if you want to look at influencing factors into in, um, patient mortality rates. Um, and that was a protocol change that came from the audit. And th uh, this isn't because we were having problems and we were having patient deaths. It was just from a safety perspective. Well, why aren't we? You know, if we have a complication, we can't address it if there's not an IV catheter in or we can't effectively and efficiently. Um, what else did I look at? Um, blood pressure measurements. So that was a really interesting one. So we were looking at how many of our patients under anaesthesia had normal blood pressure, high blood pressure, or low <coughs> blood pressure. Um, and in um, the pool of patients we did, um, only, I think it was a third of patients had their blood pressure monitored. And the reason for that was lack of resources. So lack of equipment. Sometimes we can have multiple vets um, operating at the same time. So we'd have to share machines, prioritize machines. Um, and, you know, is that okay? Um, and then moving on from that, of the patients that did have their blood pressure monitored, um, in our feline patients, quite a lot were hypotensive at some point. So then I thought, well, how about all of the ones that were not having their blood pressure monitored? Makes you start thinking about all of these different factors. Um, so it was more sort of, I had questions in my head in regards to, are there any factors, what are we doing that can increase risk? Um, and then going back to blood pressure monitoring as well, we had a lack of equipment, so that gave me quite strong evidence to go to my practice manager who sat just there um, to say, <laughs> I need four more machines, please. <laughs> yeah, um, but you, you, you know, it wasn't, we don't want it. I'm sorry, we don't, um, it's not what I want, it's what we need. We need to do our jobs really well, know that all our patients have nice blood pressure or be aware that they have low blood pressure and then act appropriately, so... Yeah. It's very interesting. Thank you very much. Um, so, um, Richard, moving on to you, you mentioned some, some areas around um, using the, um, the, the uh, management systems, you know, sort of computer information technology, and, and anything sort of related to how you're collecting data, how you're analyzing data against these kind of these targets, these criteria that you, you might, you can sort of be all choosing a topic, choosing your criteria. How do you go about collecting and analyzing that data? That's one of the really big problems is how do you get that data um, and how do you get it in a, in a sort of a, a sensible way. Um, the, what I've done on this slide is sort of briefly gone through my thought processes about how you do it. Now, our PMS system, as some of you might see in a couple of moments, is extremely old. It's the oldest. Um, it's legacy. Uh, it's dead, but it runs really, really well. Um, and the thing that you're, if you're trying to capture data and capture it as efficiently as possible, then your PMS system must have some way of being able to do that, what we call a customized protocol. So ours has a, 
customized protocol that is actually linked, for example, to the post-op checkup, uh, sale item. And what our protocol does is it asks some really, really simple questions of the user, um, which they have very little option but to answer. They can't escape from the protocol. They have to answer it. It's forced. They can't press X um, because it's not a Windows machine. And um, the data is captured. Uh, in, in our case, it's captured straight into a database. Um, but it can, in your system, if you can't manage your database, it can be connected into a spreadsheet or a CSV file, which you can then later do the, um, do the analysis on there. If you introduce a, a computerized protocol, a couple of things to really bear in mind is that you're relying on the goodwill of your staff in a busy consult to fill it up. And the most important thing is there mustn't be any more than three clicks of a mouse or three additional key characters to be entered in order to capture that data. Ideally, you want to do it in two, but if you can not do it in two, then do it in three. If you start to have a great big long protocol, as I discovered because my staff came back to me and said, we want an escape button, please, um, don't put it in with any more than three. And if you go to the next slide for us, okay, this is a PremVet that some of you may recognize, and yes, it still runs. Um, and what we've actually done is the two questions we've asked is we've asked them first of all in the post-operative checkup to categorize broadly speaking the type of procedure that they're auditing because it's really hard in a practice management system to link what was done in the operation and then what they're actually doing post-operatively. So we put them into broad categories like keyhole surgery or medical treatment or x-rays and diagnostics and then they have an option at the, the next stage, there's no problems with it, or if there is a problem. If there's no problem, it automatically just carries on and logs that as a, as a preformed text. If you go to the next page, okay, and if there is a problem, then we have five levels of interference. Only advice or reassurance is needed, that it's something we expect from this procedure, that we've got to do some medical treatment uh, in order to fix it, that we've got to do some surgical treatment in order to fix it, or that the thing's dead. Okay? And those are our sort of uh, five different um, uh, sort of parameters. And at the bottom of this, uh, I just pulled these results off our system uh, last night. You can see that over the, we've been doing it for nearly 10 years, um, we've audited close to 10,000 procedures on that, and we're consistently finding that about 92, 93% of all anaesthetics we perform don't have a significant problem that the owner reports to us. Now, that figure is quite high, but what's quite interesting is that some of these where it's got medical treatment and surgical treatment go up and down, and they, they vary. And if we just go on to the last slide, I'll show you some of the things that we've, that we've found. Um, and one of the things that we have is we have the confidence to tell our clients that most of the cases that we admit will not have any significant problem. And we can do that on the basis of having 10,000 data points. But we've also spotted problems with medication. Um, how many of you here have seen a lot of buprenorphine dysphoria? People seen it? Yeah? Well, this is something that we, that we spotted um, in, in a number of our patients. The dog would go home and we'd say to the owner at the post-op checkup, how's the dog doing? Oh, absolutely terrible. He was in so much pain. He was crying all night, whinging all night, really, really unhappy. And what was happening is they were contacting our duty vets, 
And the bet say, bring him in. So they brought them in. I better give him some more pain relief. So they gave him some more buprenorphine. And what happened? The next day, the poor thing is still in um, discomfort. But we spotted this because we found that we were auditing x-ray uh, anesthesias, where all that happened is the animal came in, anaesthetized, simple x-ray, woken up, went home. The owner said, crying in pain all night. We thought, that's odd. What's happening? So, of course, we then find that they got this buprenorphine dysphoria. What we then discovered is we spoke to the company. They said, no, it doesn't happen at all. But I can tell you from the evidence base that the older the dog gets, the longer that goes on for, and it can happen for up to 48 hours. So now we tell our clients, if you've got an old dog, he's going to be on a trip. Just, just live with it, okay? Um, the other thing that recently happened, I'm old-fashioned, so I like to give perioperative antibiotics for absolutely everything. Uh, my colleagues who know clinical stuff say I shouldn't. So they, unbeknown to me, stopped all antibiotics in cases that were ASA 2 or below. And surprisingly, I saw no change in the performance of our post-operative complication rate. We've also seen changes, um, literally overnight we saw a change where the guys um, were doing some stitches, um, they changed overnight to intradermals, and it halved our medical intervention rate. It was small to start with, um, but it halved literally overnight. And when I said to them, what have you guys done? They said, oh, we decided, we had a meeting, and we decided we were going to do everything with intradermal sutures. So intradermal sutures cut it down. Fairly recently, that level's gone up because they've got so much more cocky with intradermal sutures that they now suture everything intradermally, and a few of them tend to break down because their wounds probably oughtn't to be sutured intradermally. So these sort of changes, but because this system is live, we can actually see what happens, and anything that reports over a grade three or above um, and the complication rate um, is immediately alerted to me on the system, so I can actually look down through it and see consistent changes. So that's one of the systems we use. Got loads of others, but that's me. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think it's, it's, almost, it's almost a slightly different style of auditing because you're collecting all the data, all the, almost, almost all the data all the time. And so if you want to then, you know, um, uh, retrospectively identify trends in, in relation to yeah. changes that have been made, you're able to do that all the time just because of the sheer amount of data that you're collecting, yeah. which is, I guess, a slightly different approach to saying, I want to audit this, you know, for this set period of time, a little bit like um, what Lou describes. And I guess that it's just it's interesting seeing the ability you've got from the amount of data that you're collecting. Yeah, gives um, you a lot of power. Yeah, and, um, and I suppose there may be some people thinking, you know, it, it may be hard to know where to start with some of those things from the sort of um, technology perspective. But I guess if we got time to to sort of give some some guidance on that later, maybe we can come to that. But um, that may be maybe one of the questions that comes up. So we'll we'll see. Um, see. So we just, uh, move on. I guess naturally from from sort of having chosen topics and thought about criteria and thought about data analysis. Um, and, and how, we, how, that might, how that might look. We then move on, I guess, to the, the sort of outcomes that, or the sort of interventions or changes that, that might occur because of findings from these kind of audits. And that kind of leads us nicely onto and the work that Alison's done. Um, so I guess I'm interested to know, like, how do you know, how, how, how do you, uh, what's the indication that a, a, you know, guidelines are, are likely to be a good solution? Because I suppose they're not always necessarily the solution if you, you know, to, to all problems. So what, what might give you the indication that creating a guideline would be a good solution to, to a finding from an audit? So um, we looked for the type of cases where um, there was a big welfare impact. So 
um, osteoarthritis, we wanted to have a more consistent way of managing that and evaluating pain management. Um, anything that was expensive, so we were spending a lot of money on heart drugs, so we wanted to look at that and see um, if there was the evidence to support their use, um, if we were spending the charity's money wisely on these cases. Um, and I guess any, any sort of condition that always seems to provoke um, a lot of discussion and a lot of anxiety. Um, and I guess those conditions where we seem to have very inconsistent ways of, of managing sort of scattergun approach to managing them. Um, because we, we don't have very good continuity in our hospitals, um, it could be very confusing for vets and also for clients if approaches were varying a lot and, and different from one visit to another. Um, so those are the, the, the sort of cases that we mm -hmm. looked for in designing clinical mm -hmm. guidelines. Yeah, it makes sense. And then in terms of, I mean, you've mentioned a little bit about it, about um, um, how you involve people with a particular area, you know, interest in to, uh, to, to help with those sort of yeah. design of the, the guidelines. But are there any inf other information, other sort of guidance you can give around how you actually go about I know it's yeah. quite, it, and there is more information um, on the, um, the resources, the RCVS knowledge resources yeah. uh, on the website. So, yeah. but just to, I guess if there's anything that stands out for you in terms of how you how you go about doing yeah. it and creating them effectively, because it's one thing to create them and it's another thing to have ones that yes. that really help. Yeah. So my first attempt to create clinical guidelines was to um, ask to be off clinical rotors for two weeks and. Um, sit in my own space and try and sort of hammer out some of the guidelines. Um, but then I, I realised that it was going to be difficult to get people to accept them, that I didn't always trust my judgement. You know, what I felt was a good use of Blue Cross money. Um, perhaps other people would have different views. So I realised that wasn't going to be a way to, to successfully meet the need of guidelines. And... Um, the next strategy was to involve as many people as I could in them. So initially I picked, uh, say I was doing a um, guideline on heart disease in dogs. Um, I picked somebody who had a cardiology certificate and I said, I'm giving you a day off rotor to go and research all the latest papers on this in your own experience, um, CPD that you've attended, talk to anybody that you, you know, specialists that you have contact in your contacts. Um, and I did that for a number of different topics and then I assembled all those people in the room together, which was a huge challenge because it meant there were a lot of vets coming off clinical duties and we had to employ locum cover and be creative with the rotors and the clinics that we were offering but it was 100% worthwhile. And, and we sat in a room all day discussing, working our way through each of these subjects. So we all in the room got the benefit of the research that, that the, the primary person had done. And at the end of it, um, I had a whole lot of information um, and collective views on what we as an organization should be doing in a particular clinical area. Um, and then the slow bit was me actually writing that up into a guideline, um, also an owner information sheet, giving them the understanding of the condition and our approach to it, 
Um, and what else was available? You know, we don't offer everything. We shouldn't offer everything. Um, and how they could access further treatments if they wanted to. But also because all this research had been so fantastic and such great CPD, um, we decided that we really had to preserve that. So we created supporting notes. So if somebody went, well, why are we doing this? They could go to the supporting notes and there would be the explanation and the references there. Mm. That's amazing. It's just a huge amount of information for 16 yeah. conditions to do yeah. all, all this work. It's really, really incredible. And I'm just interested in the layout because they're both, even the, the sort of expanded version and the more sort of um, illustrated version, they're both laid out very specifically. They're, you know, they're very easy to read and they stand out as obviously, you know, as they're obviously all designed the same way. And is, yeah. is that something you spent quite a lot of time in consideration over? Did you get feedback from, from people around how they were? how yeah. easy they were to read and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so uh, initially um, we didn't use <coughs> quite so many of these flowcharts, but flowcharts are definitely what people prefer in, mm -hmm. in a clinic setting. And, um, it, you know, they have been incredibly useful in, in the clinic where you've got 10, 15 minutes to deal with a case and um, we've got them set up as a link on all our desktops so you can just flick into them. Um, scan through and know exactly how you're going to treat uh, yeah. the animal. But they are guidelines, they're, they're not protocols. Um, they are uh, laying out how Blue Cross would choose to treat an individual case. There, there will be specifics in there of things that we absolutely don't do. So, you know, this is something we don't do. But there is still clinical freedom within that. Uh, we acknowledge that every case is different, there may be owner factors that you need to take into account um, so there's still a lot of flexibility in them I think that's in, and it's, it, it may or may not be something we get time to discuss in more detail sort of the, the difference between guidelines protocols and standard yeah. operating procedures and maybe where the overlaps are and, and, a, yeah. and again that may come up as a question later anyway so we'll and that may in fact be something that, that Pam wants to discuss now because what I think would be interesting to, to talk about is we've talked about the specifics of the audit itself and again the topics the criteria measuring and analyzing and, and, and one of the outcomes from, 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 that, from that process might be um, creating guidelines, but I suppose that's just one of many. And so we'd be interested from your perspective of having seen lots of different practices go and um, implement lots of different changes. What have you found to be effective as, as sort of sustainable improvements in practice? Well, I think the most important thing with any audit is that some change comes as a result of it. It's mm -hmm. completely pointless to do it if you're not going to change anything. And in order to change anything, you need to talk to the team, you need to consult the team and find out what the barriers are to whatever's, to whatever's happening, to why somebody isn't following a guideline or why you're not getting the outcomes you wish. And I think we've talked nearly all about outcome audit up to now. And I really think that um, for veterinary practices, especially starting off in audit, process audits can be a really good place to start. So this is just seeing whether you're actually following a guideline or a protocol. Um, and obviously a protocol is something from which you should not deviate and a guideline is there just to help you to follow it. But um, process audits, there's so many such simple process audits that veterinary practices can do very, very quickly. Um, and generally, I've found that nursing teams are very keen on, on process audits too. So you can look at um, anaesthetic monitoring sheets. Um, you can look at um, anaesthetic consent forms. Have they been signed? Have they got the name of the procedure? Have they got an estimate? And you might 
quickly get a result that, yes, they've all been signed, hopefully. Hopefully um, they've got the name of the procedure, but only 50% have got an estimate or whatever. And then you've got some evidence to take back to your meeting where you have the talk about why haven't, why haven't they got an estimate? Well, it's because nobody knows how to use the estimating feature on, the, on this, new, this new PMS system we've just been given and we don't know how to use it properly. Um, it's, it's not clear, so you might set up bundles on there to make it easier or whatever. So, you know, the, the important thing, I think, is acting on it. And so I do, we do go sometimes practices, I'm sure Richard would agree, who've done audits but haven't really followed them up. Um, and then the team get a bit disillusioned. They're like, oh, yeah, I know we did that. And, yeah. Whereas the ones where they have followed them up, they can tell you how it changed things. And that's the, really, that's the powerful bit of it is the change rather than actually doing the audit's great, but the change that comes from it is the really important bit. And then the other things that we see in practice are um, practices having you know, really good clinical discussion meetings, practices um, setting up journal clubs, having somebody enthusiastic in the practice who wants to run journal clubs, um, checklists, using checklists. Um, using surgical safety checklists or using case handover checklists, things to help. None of us have perfect memories, um, you know, things to help us with the little steps. Um, and also systems of work. Actually, as I said for the significant event audit, it's not blaming people but looking at systems of work. And we had some really good talks this morning about systems of work and, you know, changing things. And I had um, one practice tell me that, um, you know, they had endless protocols about closing doors because they had two doors from the kennels area. And it was those <coughs> protocols which they'd gone through with the teams millions of times about closing. You must have both doors open at the same time. Um, but still, both doors were open at the same time, and they were really worried an animal was going to escape. So in the end, the system was to put a klaxon in, which was connected to the door. So if both doors were open at the same time, this extremely loud noise went off, and so that solved the problem. So you know, it does, it's, there can be physical things that can that can solve problems as well. And I think that's all. That is all part of quality improvement. Putting putting those things in place. And the last thing I'd just like to say would be that I think practice managers sometimes get a bit scared of it because they think it's clinical, clinical audit. It doesn't. It's management. It, it, it really is management. There's so many things where practice managers can be involved in, in clinical audit. As I say, um, auditing, um, you know, as I said, they're giving estimates about all sorts of um, consent forms and monitoring sheets and, and auditing guidelines. And, and like you say, that maybe with auditing your guidelines, you might have guidelines for cats with renal failure to involve them having their blood pressure measured. But you might, as Louise said about the... Um, anesthesia, you might only have one blood pressure monitor, and you might not have a quiet room to take them into, and you might not have two members, team members who are free, so it's looking at the barriers and asking the team to say what the barriers are, and asking the team for their ideas of how you're going to get over the barriers, rather than somebody imposing it on them. Mm. But I mean, so that's what I think practices are doing it well. That's yeah. what I've noticed about practices that are doing it well, mm -hmm. is they really involve the team mm -hmm. in, in discussing how things move on and, and yeah. make changes. And I think that was, a common, again, a common theme that came up with all the talks we've had so far today is that it's, the, it's engaging the team, um, and, and it's such an easy thing to say, but it's seeing people as the solution, not as a, as a problem to fix almost. And that, and that so sort of neatly links to, again, the safety one, safety two, that if, we, if, if we're seeing identifying problems and how we fix problems and how we, and we focus on the things that go wrong, um, as opposed to, to looking at uh, all, you know, even if something does go wrong, um, looking at the, the, even if it's that person has done that process a thousand times before and done it right, why have they done it right that other thousand times and and and, and it's not gone so well in the last time? So the audit gives us, I guess, the opportunity um, again to to involve the people and understand what the people are, are, are really doing. 
Um, okay, so I, um, I guess I've got some more sort of general questions now um, uh, to all of you, sort of to pick up on, on, on some of the stuff we've talked about. I'm interested to know, so we, so we've, we get to a point where um, something, whether it's a process or an outcome that's audited, you've got the data, some, uh, a change, as an intervention, a change, as a, whether it's a guideline, whether it's the introduction of a checklist, um, whether it's a change to some um, a training process. All, as, as, as Pam said, there's so many different changes, and it's a change that matters. But the next, the next stage is to actually understand what, you know, has that, has that change had the desired effect? Has it had any effect? You know, and, and, and so I guess I'm just interested to know generally um, what your thoughts are around how you can, when you would consider to um, review, to, to re-audit, and, and sort of the, the implications from that point onwards. And this is sort of open to all of you, really. So let's uh, <laughs> see what's it and naturally what, what comes about of it. Anyone, any, any takers? It varies on, it depends on what you've audited, actually, mm -hmm. like specifically. So um, like for my anaesthesia one, that was a big chunk of patients over two months. Um, so, and that was a lot of time. It took me hours to process all of that. So for me to do that sort of every two months, sorry, four two months, every six months probably isn't realistic if I'm honest, in how everything is for me at work. Um, so what I decided I would do instead is just pool sort of 20 patients here and there um, and just see how we were doing. So looking at those things that were not done before or where we had complications, all of the things I looked at, I adapted our um, monitoring forms to make sure that information would be recorded. Um, most of the time it is, but it's a clinical form, so that's another audit in itself, making sure your staff actually complete forms and have the time to do so. Um, so that's what I tend to do, spot checking now, really, here and there when I have time. Um, and that's not so organised, but um, if I do notice anything, you know, particularly as if anything significant, I'll, I'll raise it. Um, but to be honest, now that's more surveillance on form filling out because that's more of the problem than the problems I'm seeing because we are much more aware now of the complications we encountered through that audit and therefore are on it and taking action much more effectively and quickly. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Any other thoughts on, again, also the regularity of re-auditing? Because it can be hard to know maybe sometimes whether we come back to it in a month, two months, three months. Do we then have a regular process whereby it's re-audited every six months? Is that something that you have any guidance on, or is that...? I think we should look at it every six months to eight, 12 months, depending on what it is, and decide then whether you... I mean, I think you need to do a re-audit, but when you do it depends on the individual circumstances of mm -hmm. that particular thing, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's very important. You, you haven't finished the process if you don't do a re-audit. Mm -hmm because you've got to monitor you've made your change but you've got to, has it really made a difference yeah and not just the subjective feel of whether it's made a difference but actually has it made a difference hmm. um that's i guess it, it makes me think a bit about um there was a reference earlier in the, the first talk of the day around this uh, expression that some of you may if you were here may remember this idea of hitting the target but missing the point and i just think that i think so many people probably heard that and think in some way or other they can relate to, to to that concept that and i think this is maybe the concern and i don't you know for some people with when it comes to audits that you know if we if we look at something very specific and we can you know and, and we have a, a particular target that we're trying to to or something that we're trying to understand the criteria that we're um that we're trying to um get some information on and then we then we make a change and we demonstrate that we've improved that area there's a concern maybe that that that, that would be at the detriment to something else if you do if you focus on one thing for for you know for a long period of time and your all your focus is on proving that area what implications is it having beyond that particular area that you're focusing on so in terms of, you know is it, is it have you experienced anything around, around that in in the processes you've been involved in 
say it like really narrows, narrows your mind, focus, saying focused on one area, because I often find it, it's like you're doing one thing, but then all of these other thought processes come off of it, and then you've got all these other little projects going on as well. I don't know how you will feel about that. So I know you do the ongoing audit, don't yeah, you, ours, as well? I suppose the fact that ours is live means that if someone has a thought process about if we change this, will it improve that? or will it make any effect, then because it's a, essentially a live feed, we can actually more or less see that happening in, in real time, which is, a, which is a fantastic facility to be able to, to, be able to see it. You know, and, you know, I joke about the perioperative antibiotics, but yeah, great, we decided to do it. They've done it, not telling the boss, so to speak, um, and, it's, um, and uh, used his own database against him. So yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, think, I think with guidelines, um, just that sort of approach to analysing the evidence, incorporating an assessment of welfare and cost um, has changed the way uh, our teams approach everything really. And the more we do of it, the more used they get to, to making those judgments in, in all areas. After all, I have no intention of generating a clinical guideline for absolutely everything. It's just not practical and I don't believe it's going to be particularly helpful to do that. But um, I think it does change the way people work. Mm -hmm. It's, it, 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 again, this is something that came up earlier around different types of work, either, either, either whether we categorise them as sort of simple, complicated or complex, and there's other, there's other areas that have been classified as to whether certain tasks are considered to be very safe tasks and certain tasks are considered to be very dynamic and, um, and what they would consider to be highly adaptive tasks. And if something is a very, very safe task, then it, as in it's something which is highly, as long as you come up with a process, then it's likely, to, then it, then it's likely that the rest will follow. Um, whereas if you're doing something highly dynamic in the middle of something quite complex surgery, you can't have a procedure of everything. If you try and proceduralize everything, yeah. you actually stifle the ability to yeah. get the job done. And knowing that balance, and I think this is maybe the concern sometimes if we, if we try and create too many protocols, guidelines, um, and checklists for everything, mm -hmm. then we're actually stifling the ability for, for that sort of freedom um, to, to adapt and knowing the difference between something which is simple enough and, and predictable enough, but actually just having a procedure. I always liken it with flying, like you know, starting an, an engine on an aeroplane. As long as you do that, then that, then that, then that, 99.999% of the time, the rest will follow. And so as long as you have a process, it means those things happen in that order every time, you're going to get the job done really well. But when you have, they're going to have moments like um, if anyone's watched the film Sully and both engines stop and you have to suddenly come up with a plan, you can't have a procedure for that. And if you try to, you're going to stifle their ability to, to do the job. And I'm sure the same applies to, in these situations, knowing when to, when to provide structure and when not to. I don't know if that's something you've ever come across. I think it's, I mean, that's something else that we've looked at. Where you've got um, a, a procedure, I mean, I'll, I'll give a simple example. We do a lot of work for a rabbit charity and uh, we spay an awful lot of rabbits. And what I discovered is that the guys have the small animal manual and they're there and they weigh the rabbit and then they all sit down with a calculator and they go through and they work out the six or seven different drugs, um, write them all on a sheet with all the appropriate times. It probably takes a head nurse probably 15 minutes to do it. And not only was this a very bad use of time, there's also the possibility of error. So. We looked at our IT system and we said, do you know what, we can automate this process. So now the only thing that even the most junior nurse has to do is to enter the weight of the rabbit 
and it will automatically calculate all the intervals, all the times, and all the drug dose rates. And this has given us a really consistent um, anesthesia for rabbits. And the other thing that we've discovered is the guys said, they're taking a little bit long to recover. Maybe we can just um, alter one of the drugs slightly. So we altered the drug slightly, but put that into the equation. So instantly, from that point onward, every rabbit was receiving the adjusted dose rate to much greater effect. And this is the sort of thing, this, this reduces error and it makes the whole process become much, much easier. We had a similar sort of thing. We had new graduates joining us and um, they haven't got a clue what the drugs are. So we wrote a nice little spreadsheet for them um, with all our drugs and all the dose rates on it. And uh, they carry these things round, um, guard them with their lives, uh, laminated sheets, this is my drug sheet. And um, then we found that some of us older codgers were asking us, could we look at their sheet, please? Um, because we wanted to know what was happening. And we thought, do you know, why don't we make this thing dynamic? So we've in fact now got a drug database um, and we've categorized all the drugs on it. So people like me consulting think, oh, I want a heart treatment. I just type in heart. <laughs> And it gives me all the drugs for that particular dog, little explanation about what each one does, all the dose rates, everything on it, and I don't even have to think about it, okay? And someone, some smart Alec comes along and says there's two types of Symmetra. Fine, they just add it on the database. I do correct that bit because they don't add it wrong. And then you've got that instant information. Mm. And um, it makes life so much easier. Yeah. You know, it takes out so much time. But that's mm. a, an error reduction process yeah. as opposed to a QI. Um, it is, it's QI, well, but it's a different, QI. it's a Error different, really it's really part important part of, of um, you know, <coughs> yeah. Andrew said earlier about, about you know, medication, about medicine errors, and, and also, um, was it, uh, Shoban said right at the beginning about, uh, about how many medicine errors there are, it's just, you know, horrendous the amount of medicine errors in the NHS, we don't even know what our level of medicine errors are, but, I mean, there are drugs that look the same, ones that you have to type an awful long way across on the computer um, before you differentiate between one another, or drop-down boxes with um, the sizes, which when, you get, when you've got to put your glasses on, and so on, you know, it's very easy to make mistakes, mm -hmm. isn't it? So anything that'll, that'll cut down those mistakes. So things like where there's two uh, syringes in, in a, in a, a meloxicam-type product, where there's a large syringe and a small syringe, just give the owner the syringe that's the correct one for their dog. Don't give them both. The number of times a four kilo dog's had the 40 kilo dose because the owner's just got four in the head and uses the other syringe. Mm -hmm. So those things are so, they're such a good idea and, and just cut down the possibility of errors so much. Yeah. And that's definitely QI, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And providing simple solutions to, to known issues. As I said, it, it's, it's not stifling anyone. It's just helping, helping get the job done. Um, Absolutely. So I'm interested a little bit. So um, I guess w w one of the topics that's come up uh, um, that we've already mentioned is that of engaging the whole team and making sure everyone's as, as many people are involved in these processes as possible. Um, have you have any of you experienced any barriers? In, you know, any any resistance? Um, any anything that that's got in the way of of sort of <coughs> engaging getting that buy-in from people involved when it comes to I guess any of these processes that we've mentioned really? I think time. 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 Yeah for the individual that's doing the QI, because it does, it does take time. But once you're, 
like practice are on board and they they know they understand the value and they can allocate you time it's not a problem um, you, I have had a little bit of resistance um, prior to giving sort of like the data to the team so when I first said I'm going to do an anesthesia audit I want to look at all of these um, factors um, and this is the reason why everyone's been like oh gosh you know I'm gonna make loads of changes like oh change is just you know some people really hate change don't they um, and I understand that I'm not one of those people that hate change but some people do. Um, so engaging with the team was by far the best thing. So giving them the results, say, here you go, have a look at this. And they were like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. I can't believe this. And then even before I started the conversation about what should we do, they were saying, oh, maybe we could try this. And oh, maybe we could try that. Um, and I was like, bingo. So that was great. Um, and because of the, some of the changes involved um, protocol changes in regards to drugs and also patient management, um, I, had to, I, I arranged CPD for the team as well, so everybody really understood deeply why we should potentially change what we were changing. Um, and then actually, it wasn't that hard at all, it was absolutely fine, but um, getting everyone to feel like they're involved in it, and it's not you running the show and telling everyone what to do, it's not that at all, it's what we should all maybe be doing a little bit differently, it's all about the wording really. Uh, yeah. You know, that language came up mm. again, the use of the, the, the subtle differences and how the language can be used and the impact that will have on how people feel. And again, the feelings side of this has come up a lot today as well, hasn't it? Um, and I think something that um, uh, Shoban also mentioned earlier was this, I, the, I think it was the transitional, I've actually made a note of it because I always forget, the William Bridges transitional model, and it's that um, reaction to change. That we all, and, and actually, it was amazing, really, when you look at it, how similar it is to the grief cycle. That, you know, it's a shock. Some people, it's an emotional shock. It's seen as a criticism. It goes right to the heart. It's an emotional reaction. And I just found that really interesting, comparing a grief cycle to, to the suggestion that someone might do something differently and why they might find that difficult. Is that something they experience, again, from a, as a barrier to these things? Yeah, I think the barrier is, is change. And that's why we discovered that you can only really introduce, if you're trying to introduce a, a computerized process, you can only add two, max three steps. You cannot ask for any more uh, because everyone would just be up in arms with it. So you have to really design it from the user's perspective, not from the IT professional's perspective. Mm -hmm. I think this is one really big mistake that we, we you, know, you, you know, all these practice management companies, bless them, uh, they come in and say, of course it works like this, but in reality, people say, I just want it to work and work quickly without interfering with my life. And, and that's really what's got to happen. Yeah. So you've got to really put a lot of thought. I think the same would go if you're introducing paper procedures or whatever. It's somehow got to fit into what they're doing with minimal disturbance. So a small, and you're probably better to introduce small changes subtly, okay? So you introduce two steps. You want six, so you introduce two, let that run for three to four months. And they see the benefit of that, and then you introduce another two and let that run, and then introduce another two and let it back. Mm. So sort of um, yeah. drip feed it that way. Yeah, it's just taking into account how it might be perceived, how people might feel, what might the yeah, what might be those barriers? Yeah. Any, any again, any other thoughts on? Yeah, I mean, making it accessible is is really important. So when we first had our guidelines, I printed out a load of them and kept them in folders in all the work areas. But then I realised that updating these folders was just going to be a nightmare and um, wasn't going to be sustainable. Um, so we then had them on our intranet, but our intranet is not particularly well designed and it, it takes 
way more than three clicks to get to clinical guidelines. So um, we developed a, a, just a link. Our IT team put a link um, to the guidelines on the uh, desktop and people, I encourage them to open it at the beginning of the day and then just minimize it. And that makes it very accessible. Um, I think we had, getting people involved in the creation of them is an obvious solution to getting buy-in. Not everybody wanted to be involved initially, but I think as time has gone on, then I think people are coming around to the idea and um, those that were initially reluctant are now quite keen to be involved. Um, calling it CPD was really helpful. You know, they, you know, everybody's got to log their hours and um, getting them to log the hours that they spent on this was good. I think you've got to give people time as well. It, it, there's no use expecting them to, to fit this, this in in lunch hours or um, at the end of work. So there is a, an investment in terms of reduction of clinical work or provision of locum cover in order to get it done. And um, the other thing we've done is we do audit our guidelines. Um, so we look at the cases and see how well the guidelines have been followed. And uh, we audit our high spend cases. So we isolate, uh, you know, it's the usual 80-20 rule. 20% of our cases cost 80% of the, the money. So we look at a selection of those cases and um, we get uh, the teams to look at them. Um, so asking them, you know, for their opinions on whether guidelines were followed, whether it was good use of money, communication with the client, welfare of the animal, um, and score it on a, a traffic light system. Um, but all of those things, I think, give, give um, our teams a, a sort of ownership of the process and um, I think has made a big difference to how, how much uptake there's been. Mm. I think this, yeah, the, the, I think that that is, is got a, a big concern, and certainly in the, in the thought process for a lot of people considering this, is that the buy-in, the motivation, the engagement, the barriers, all those sort of things. Um, and I think there's something, certainly something I've seen is that they, that, that consistency, and sometimes realizing that you might not get immediate buy-in. You might, some people might struggle with it for a while, and that was part of what we saw from this model that we looked at earlier was that actually just sticking with it and just you know knowing that over time, as long as you do explain why, as long as you do consider why it might be challenging for them just continue and actually eventually the consistency and especially when the results start to come through and people see positive change you communicate positive change you know they can start to see that it might take quite a while but it does take that patience I suppose sometimes um, so um, any any other thoughts before we sort of open it up to sort of more general questions uh, any any other thoughts on this sort of engagement buying barriers side of things from anyone no, I, I agree with Alison the, the, the main thing is to explain it really to the team at the start and give them time to ask lots of questions so they don't have worries about why why you're doing things I think um, and then once it gets going I think because you actually when you start auditing things you often get this Hawthorne effect where the thing just improves because everybody knows you're watching it so that can be quite a positive motivator in, in its way and then teams within the practice within the big practice team other teams in other areas will start to compete and that why can't we do this as well and and, and I think it's so positive for um, you know for, for people's motivation and, and mental health actually because they, they feel they can bring things up they feel they can discuss things i think you know well-being is such a an issue in our profession that being, being having a practice that's open and can, can discuss all these things and people can feel safe to discuss them mm. is really important yeah it's such such strong link to the psychological safety the just just culture the way people are heard the way that information is received and, and again you read some of the sydney decker's information on just culture is that the response to events 
you know, communicating what changes occurred and you know what good has come from these things is a big part of it. And although it's not necessarily only about adverse events, but the same pr principle here. Um, so I think it's probably a good time to see if there's any any questions from from anyone. I don't know if we're able to use the, um, uh, the anything from from um, Slido um, or whether it's easier to just use the microphone. But um, are we able to do that here? No. Is any anything popped up? Or are we just going to use the microphone? Okay. Okay. Um, any any questions at this stage from anyone in the, in, in the group about anything that's come up at all? I think we've covered quite a lot of information there. So, <laughs> oh, we've got something over here. I think there's just one over here. <laughs> Hi. Um, I've just got a question in terms of um, we've got a new team that are going to go gung ho for all of the quality improvement and everything, which I'm really excited about, but. I'm just wondering how much time do you think it's feasible to allocate to them to do those particular audits and processes? Because I just want to give them what they need, but at the same time not take away from their clinical duties as well. So I don't know if you've got any tips in terms of where to start in that area of just time managing it all yeah, to anybody. I get, <laughs> um, I get on average between a half day and a full day every other week. Um, but that is for, I audit every single patient that comes in for an anaesthetic or sedation now. That's, I've been doing that since June this year. Um, that's, that's been a, just over a thousand patients in that time. And um, because our, we, we have Teleos as our practice management software, so I have to extrapolate the data from there into a Microsoft spreadsheet. So that takes me a long time, although I've got really speedy at it now, so that's good. But um, yes, I have at least half to one full day every other week for audits, and that's looking, and then that's not just recording, but then it's reflecting and brainstorming and communicating with the team as well. Um, we, if we're auditing uh, cases, like the high spend cases, then um, we usually allow somebody half an hour to, to look at it. So most of them will actually they enjoy it so they'll do it in their own time but they're um, at liberty to <coughs> block off a couple of appointments in the diary on their clinic day in order to do that um, as I said before if somebody's researching a topic for a clinical guideline we'll give them a day off rota um, and then obviously the big time investment is the meeting to, to discuss everything um, but yeah and it, it is, time is a problem, and it's always going to be a problem, but I think if you can uh, reframe what you're doing in other ways, so, uh, you know, instead of just seeing it as a cost of time, you're seeing it as quality improvement, um, you might get better outcomes, uh, you might get more turnover, um, you can consider the CPD value of it, the team building value of it, uh, then perhaps it, it doesn't seem so expensive. Sorry, could I just add as a practice manager, if you're getting quality improvement and we're getting better outcomes, then hopefully we have more satisfied clients and fewer complaints. And it's easier to deal with those complaints if you know that all of the hospital sheets, the anaesthetic sheets, everything has been completed properly and that we're actually monitoring um, because inevitably, you know, there will be outcomes that are not as good as we would hope for all sorts of factors, but it's a lot easier to explain that and 
gives the, the owner much better data and a much better response to enable them to understand why something for their particular pet may not have been quite as good as we'd all have wished it to. Do you think sometimes that, just following on from that, that sometimes it, it takes a sort of almost a, a, a longer term view to, 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 to get the payback almost from these things? And one of the, the figures, I, I can't remember the exact figures, someone else may remember from Shobin's talk earlier, that they, they ended up saving, I mean, this is big numbers being a big, a big trust with 14,000 staff, but um, the numbers were something like 3.2 million saved, but it turns out, but it, and it turns out that the actual cost up, up front was 100,000. To, to, to make that 3.2 million pound saving, which up in, in, on the face of it, in that moment, 100,000 might have seemed like a lot. Mm -hmm. Wow, we're going to spend 100 grand to get nothing immediately back from it. But, in, but in, in, over the period of, I've forgotten how many, how many years, not that, not that long a period of time, they saved 3.2 million. So I was just you know, seeing that, that long-term view, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, any, other, any other questions, thoughts, anything that's not come up? Is anyone? about when you first start looking at um, data so when I first started doing vet audits so the looking at post-operative neutering complications at first we didn't make massive like improvements and I was like oh gosh you know I've been looking at things changing little things and it hasn't made a big difference but you that's the part of it is working out what it is that isn't working and, and making it better and what it was for us was this very simple thing of introducing pet shirts to dogs to prevent wound interference because you know as soon as the owner gets the pet, the, the pet home they take the buster collar off because the dog doesn't like it and they lick their wound and then it breaks down and gets infected and gross but if you can sort of just change your post-op care instructions you give to an owner like that was a game changer for us mm -hmm. like with your intradermal sutures as well cats aren't going to chew out their skin stitches if they're not there because they're under the skin and it, they're much happier so it's like thinking about all the influencing factors to why things are not improving or you are the way you are and it can be a bit frustrating because I wanted it like that but um, yeah it took time so mm -hmm. and we still do have bad months but not as many <laughs> do a little advert for really for vet audit at RCBS knowledge if everybody would um, submit their data to vet audit we get you know we get going we're going to get so much more out of it and also there's canine cruciate registry which has started now it has started hasn't it yeah um, so that's so that one's to, that's recording the results of all cruciate procedures it doesn't have to be a referral place doesn't have to be a, a specialist it's just recording all the data and that should be really valuable in you know when that's um, the data has been collected. So these benchmarking exercises, I think there's going to be more and more of them uh, because that's what we perhaps suffer from a little bit from not having those benchmarks and those standards compared to the medical profession. Yeah, I think it's just, just data generally. You know, Richard, what you, what you explained nearly 10,000 reports over 10 years and all the data you've got, the, 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 the benefit that is to you, you know, at any time. It's very, very powerful um, when you start, but, but it's being able to analyse it is, yeah. the, is the skill. Yeah, it's really, really huge. The whole profession data will be even more powerful. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I mean. If you're getting that from one practice, imagine, yeah. you know, once we start to combine that. And that comes from, from these audits, from, from collecting our own information, also from, from um, tools that were mentioned earlier, such as like VetSafe and other, yeah. other sort of um, event reporting. So the more data we've got, the, the more we can do. But sometimes seeing the value in that in the short term, in isolation, seeing what's the benefit from reporting that in, in this moment. Maybe not much, but when you combine it with all the other information, you just, sometimes it's impossible to foresee what you could do with the data until you until you got it. Um, so, is there anything else that stands out? Again, you want to sort of even ask each other, or uh, anyone? Uh, if you feel like I've got a little free opportunity, but. Um,
if not, um, I suppose in, in summary, I think it's, yeah, it's been really interesting. We've had, got a chance to touch on all sorts of aspects of you know, the audits, the outcomes of the audits. Um, and and not, as I said, not just the audits, but, um, but what you can do with it, how you can review it, hopefully answered any, any questions you might have had. And said from my perspective, you know, the, the, from the patient safety side of things, you know, the, all, the, all the stuff that comes, a lot of the initiatives that have come out in, in patient safety um, sort of programs, checklists, improving handover and you know, other, other communication structures, um, all sorts of different things involved within those projects. And, and ultimately, it, 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 does, it does save lives. You know, we just look at one project in isolation. We look at the, the World Health Organization research into checklists and the 18-month project around the world. They found a, you know, an average 47% reduction in avoidable, what they considered to be avoidable death rates. Um, and this is something that, this is a tool that we'd have evidence for exactly how, how it can be used, um, you know, <coughs> what it should look like. And we've got the guidance now, the, you know, really, really helpful guidance around how that can be ad ad adopted. Um, and and, and we, we've got an idea of the sort of improvement that can come as a result of that. We've talked about the financial improvement, you know, that was experienced from, from, um, from these sort of projects. So it's just, I think it's incredibly valuable. So I appreciate everyone's time. Um, I guess that's my sort of summary on things. Unless anyone's got any other questions, and I think let everyone start making their way home. Uh, anything else? So thank you very much indeed. For free courses, examples, and templates for quality improvement in your practice, please visit our quality improvement pages on our website at rcvsknowledge.org.